with the MBA, with its core courses and with the broader thinking, it makes you more versatile. So you can change industries, you can change careers, you can change specialties as your as as the years go on. So if you want to be a successful business person, and if you think that your first job won't be your last job, then an MBA is going to prepare you better for your career. Hi friends, this is Austin and welcome to another episode of Gritty and Curious. Gritty and Curious is a podcast that gives you the inspiration, knowledge, and tools to start your next venture. In this episode, I have a discussion with Professor Leon Frazier about MBAs, consulting, and the future of education. So if you ever thought about getting your master's in business, entering the consulting industry, or thought about what the future of education might look like, this is definitely the episode for you. Professor Frazier is currently the interim chief executive officer and state director of the New Jersey Small Business Development Centers, NJSBDC. He also works at Rutgers Business School in the Department of Management and Global Business, teaching courses like executive leadership, managing workforce diversity, management consulting, and many others. He teaches undergraduate and graduate students and has won Best Professor Awards on both levels. In the past, he was a strategy executive with Verizon, the VP of marketing at a software company, and he also has done various management consulting projects. In terms of academics, he has his master's in business from Wharton, specializing in management, and he also has his bachelor's degree from Harvard, majoring in government. Super excited to get into this episode, but first, a couple of announcements. Number one, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow, leave a rating, and write a quick review. By doing this, you let me know that you're listening, and it inspires me to keep creating. And number two, we recently started a Gritty and Curious LinkedIn group. It's a group of self-starters, creators, and entrepreneurs. And if this sounds like you, you should definitely get involved we're all inspiring, inspiring each other to try new things. There's lots of people that have already been inspired to start their own businesses, podcasts, or blogs. So I really can't wait to see where this thing can go. So if you're interested in that, then you should definitely join. Anyways, let's get into the episode. Something that I wanted to talk about, and this is something that I'm curious to learn a little bit more about, and this is also something that my friends have talked about in the business school, is getting your master's in business. And it's something that a lot of people are considering, but it's also something, there's lots of opinions on whether you should get your master's, where you should go, when you should get it. So the first thing I want to ask you is, if you want to get your master's in business, when should undergrads plan to get their MBA? Well, I think it's almost universal now that schools, grad schools for business will require you to have at least two years of full-time experience before you're admitted. That That's certainly uh, Rutgers policy. That's Harvard Business School's policy. That's most schools' policy. And the reasoning is because the professors tend to use case study method, which means we take a company, we dissect it, and then we try to come up with answers it's important for students to have a frame of reference in order to help to solve the problems. Summer internships are fine. 
but there's a phrase, uh, one year exposure, two years experience. So once you have two years under your belt, it's more, it, it, it's, it's more meaningful. So uh, I would highly recommend work experience in between. I believe the Harvard Business School has some sort of program, two plus two, where you can uh, apply in your senior year, be admitted immediately, but your, your uh, matriculation doesn't start from two years hence. So that's another option. As it turns out, when I graduated uh, from Harvard, I went straight through to the Wharton School. And maybe it's because of Ivy Ivy thing, I'm not really sure, but I felt that I was at a disadvantage in classes because I didn't have that full-time experience in between. I, I graduated, I, I did well, but I think I could have done better and the journey would have been easier if I had those two years of experience. So when you were at Wharton, were you with students who had also just finished their undergrad or was it a mix of people who were coming back after doing their two or three years in the workforce? It was a mix. It was a mix. And uh, students from all over the world, uh, students who had Wall Street experience, students who had consulting experience, uh, students who had executive experience. I was in there uh, you know, with the elbows trying to make uh, my case. So Wharton would not have ex accepted me if they didn't think that I would be successful. But again, I think the journey would have been easier if I had um, two years experience. Now this was, I would say, in the prior millennium when things were a little different. Now, I think it's almost essential. Having said that, I'm not sure if the online MBAs require that experience, but I think for, for everyone's benefit in the classroom, it would benefit to go to a school where they require you to have at least two years experience before you start. So how has business school changed since when you were at Wharton and now? I mean, there's lots of technological changes and I'm sure there's probably been some changes in the way things are taught, but what are some things that you've noticed from being studying in business school and now you're teaching business school? Yeah, well, one thing that has not changed and maybe is even more essential is the prerequisites to be computer literate and also to know calculus and statistics. Uh, I didn't think that was really important uh, going in, but, but I did it. I use those skills in school and maybe even as undergraduate business students, you think, hey, this, this is a waste of time. But it, it really helps you think through things. So I would say before it was nice to have those three things, computer literacy, statistics, and technology savvy are, are essential. Um, what's also changed is, I guess, the, the market itself. Uh, when I was in school, again, in the prior millennium, working on Wall Street was considered the, the top tier, the, the, the gold ring, or as you, would, as you would call it. Now it's more oriented toward Silicon Valley and startups and, and that sort of thing, or working for consulting firms. So the, the, the nature of the market and the nature of the aspirations of students have changed.
So now do you see that in the classes that you're teaching now or most people fixated on going to work for the next Google as opposed to going to be an investment banker? There are those who still aspire to do that. I think now because of where Rutgers Business School is situated, that students want to take advantage of the industries that are near us, namely financial services and pharmaceuticals. So but I don't see a lot of aspirations to go to California or, or Seattle or San Francisco. Uh, it's more oriented toward going to New York Wall Street or to the Princeton area for, for those kinds of firms. So there's something that Professor Mukesh Patel is starting or had just started called Road to Silicon Valley. Have you heard of that? I have. There's Road to Wall Street. Uh, there's Road to Silicon Valley. I think there may be something uh, uh, percolating Road to CPA. And, and those those are all good things. And by the way, they're all at the undergraduate level. So at Rutgers, you, you benefit from having professors like uh, Professor Patel uh, and others who have connections and know how to properly prepare you for those kinds of careers. Yeah, and that's definitely something that I've noticed at the undergraduate level is that there's so many opportunities if you want to do something. There's there's a group of people who are also ambitious and eager to get there as well. So the resources are there. It's just a matter of recognizing that they are there and then taking advantage of them. You're absolutely right. So going back to the idea of getting your MBA, what's the value in getting your MBA today? That That is almost a, an existential question right now because I would say that nationwide enrollments for the master's level has gone down. Uh, there's been an, even while the trend is going down, there's been an increase in, in online MBAs. And in addition to that, with the MBA program being two years, a lot of folks are opting for, for one-year programs, specialty masters, let's say in uh, quantitative finance or in, uh, in analytics or, or those kinds of things. I think the MBA still has its advantages over the one-year specialties because an MBA will train you to be uh, versatile. And with the one-year specialty degrees, not to demean them, but you can be a one-trick pony. With the MBA, with its core courses and with the broader thinking, it makes you more versatile. So you can change industries, you can change careers, you can change specialties as your as as the years go on. So if you want to be a successful business person, and if you think that your first job won't be your last job, then an MBA is going to prepare you better for your career. So if you could do it again, what I mean by that, 
going back to get your MBA, would you give yourself that gap to go work and come back? Or maybe would you not even go to business school? Like what, if you were in a student's position right now, what would you advise them to do? Absolutely try to get a work experience in, in any industry. And if, if you are in an industry, you can just be there for two years. I, my preference was for services industries. Uh, I've worked uh, in telecommunications, in uh, newspapers, in insurance, all services, not manufacturing. And my graduate degree prepared me for all of those things. I would have been underprepared because my undergraduate degree was not in business. Maybe most of your listeners' undergraduate degrees are in business, so you, you have a better edge than I did at the time. But uh, I, I would definitely have gone to business school regardless whether I had the experience or not. I just, as the, as the, as the cards fell, I, I took what was dealt to me and I went to school right away. What was that like in terms of the transition from your political science major? What kind of inspired you to go to business school? And how was that transition in terms of the information you were learning, the relationships you were building? Just talk a little bit about that. My major in business school was management. And I looked at it from the perspective of there are different types of organizations, but there's a commonality in how they're managed. They're for-profit entities, they're not-for-profit entities. There are government entities, and let's say they're healthcare entities, which, which can cross across all of them. I was able to take a curriculum that made me, again, the word versatile, versatile in all of those arenas. Uh, and and that's, that's what prepared me, and my course selection reflected that. My first job out of grad school was in the federal government. My second job out of grad school was in private industry. And I felt that I was prepared with a management degree for either. <clears throat> for folks who are choosing finance or supply chain or, or analytics or whatever the case may be, if you have those core skills, I would say don't feel that you have to be tied to a particular company or a particular industry. But what can you learn that would be applicable in a variety of scenarios? And that would make you more, more important, uh, more marketable, and more valuable to your employer. So something that we have kind of gone back and forth with is the value of getting your MBA. And you, you keep referring to how it makes you a more versatile candidate and it makes you understand different things and just become a more well-rounded person. But what specific skills do you learn when you're getting your master's in business, whether that be critical thinking, from solving cases to problem solving, creativity? What, what are some specific skills? Well, undergraduate school is preparing you for your, your first job. Uh, as an intern or an analyst and so forth, you're expected to have some fundamental skills and 
be supervised. You're not going to supervise anybody your first job out of uh, undergraduate school. For graduate school, the expectation is, one, your level of skills is higher, and two, that you'd either work on a team or be the team leader, and that's managing people. So the, the MBA experience is more rigorous. The, the skill requirements are higher. The cases are harder. The professors are harder on you because they're trying to prepare you for the environment that you'll face when you graduate. So on the undergraduate side, even as a leadership and management major, it's, 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 it's theoretical because you're not gonna do that right away when you graduate. If you have an MBA degree, it is highly likely that one, you'll work on a team, two, that you'll lead the team, or three, that you'll even be at a higher level than that, maybe even director or, or vice president. Your, your expectation is that you're gonna get into a higher slot than you were when before you came to business school. So in, in short, you're prepared more rigorously because the expectations of you when you finish are higher. And you must be able to compete at that level in business school in order to compete at that level after you get out of business school into that first postgraduate job. So another thing that a lot of undergrads and people that I've talked to are concerned with and want a little bit more information about is the difference between the top 10 and 20 business schools and the others. And like you, a lot of people get very obsessed with the this top 10 or these lists that you see online. And it's unless you're there and you got your education from one of these top schools and you are able to compare it to another school that's not a quote unquote target school, it's hard to understand the differences and what makes a target school a target school and the most competitive. So what I want to ask you is what is the difference between a you know a top 10 business school and all of the others? In, in a sense, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you believe the top 10 schools are the top 10 schools, then they will be. And then it creates a cycle where they attract top candidates and so forth. So let, let's take Harvard Business School, for example. The, the age of their uh, students skews higher than it does for, for most other business schools. Well, when the age skews higher, that means they have more experience. Let's say not two years, but five to seven years. Well, someone with five to seven years experience is going to be more prepared than someone with zero or two, and then they get they get hired, okay? So again, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And what's sad is that why 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 would employers make a decision about someone who had to make their own decision when they're 16 or 17 year olds about what undergrad school they went to in order to prepare for them for the grad school that they're going 
four. The, the top 10 schools have more money. They have bigger endowments. They get more research grants. They're able to prepare, rather pay their professors more. And consequently, they're able to be more selective in the professors that they have. The professors of the top 10 schools may have been somewhere else. And then let's say even they graduate to the higher level at a top 10 school. So they, they do have those assets going for them. If you're not at a top 10 school or top 20 school and Rutgers is neither, you're going to learn the same things. It won't be from people who have written books or have been on television, but you'll get the same thing. It just means that you need to try a little harder than the folks who, who, who are like honey at the top 20 schools, attracting the bees, uh, employers. You've, you've got to uh, make more noise in order for them to see you. It is harder, uh, but it can be done. Yeah, and that's something that I love and I think a lot of people love about Rutgers is the determination, the grit, and like all the behind the scenes stuff that super ambitious and determined students do to get their faces in front of big name employers. And, you know, a lot of people have these goals that they set for themselves, you know, freshman year, junior year, I want to work for this company, I want to get an internship here. And they're getting the same jobs as students at these top 10 schools. And it's amazing because it's just that kind of culture that Rutgers has and New Jersey has. And it makes me proud to say that I, I go to Rutgers and I just have so much pride in what Rutgers University has done for me and for everybody around me. Let me, let me just add one more thing about that, if I may, before we switch. And that is that like the feedback that I've gotten and that career services has gotten about Rutgers students is that their action were desirable because they work harder, even among the Big Ten graduate schools. They come in, they work hard, and they stay. As opposed to the so-called top 10 or 20 schools, they come in with the sense of privilege, oh, okay, what can you do to keep me? And after two years, I'm going to bail and do something else. So we actually, in the Big Ten, have an advantage for that very grit, uh, hard work, and ethic that you refer to in your remarks. Yeah, and I definitely see that. There's like no, there's no sense of entitlement, really, from any Rutgers students. It's not like, like they're walking into interviews and with a chip on their shoulder, and they know that they have a target on their back, but they don't, but they don't care because that's just what it is and everybody's fighting for these positions and everybody wants to help each other out and just kill it overall. So, all right, I'm, I'm glad we, we talked a little bit more about that. Yeah. So now let's move on to the topic of consulting because you have some experience in this area and this is something that we discussed. We wanted to talk about. And the first thing I want to ask you is what is consulting? I'm going to answer it a little differently. I'll say that we can talk about consulting in terms of two different views. Uh, let's say two sides of the same coin. Uh, first, let's talk about the consultant and then let's talk about the client. 
So a consultant is someone who diagnoses a client's problem and seeks to influence the client to accept their recommendations. And there's some key words in there. So a client is someone who diagnoses the problems. The client says what the problem is. And just as a doctor would diagnose uh, an ailing person, you have to go through different sequences and tests to see what the underlying problem is. And then once you know what the problem is and you make your recommendations, you have to influence the client to accept the recommendations because you don't have the power to make them accept the recommendations. So you have to use your persuasive power to say, yes, we've done this. Uh, this is what you need to do and, and go for it. On the flip side is a client. And a client is someone who pays a third-party consultant to solve a problem that they could not solve on their own. So there are a few aspects of that. So the client is someone who pays someone. Um, if you're not paid, you may be an advisor or a mentor or something like that. So when a client pays a consultant, there's an exchange of value. Uh, I'm paying you this fee because I'm expecting value in return. And the second part is uh, that the consultant solves a problem that the client could not solve on their own. If they could have solved it on their own, they would need a consultant and they would need to pay money. So that the problem is often presented as something that's unsolvable. And that's where the consultant comes in to address that unsolvable problem, to make recommendations, and then to seek change in the behavior or in the balance sheet of the client once they're done. I really like how you, you put that, you know, consultants diagnose and they influence and they make recommendations and clients or people that pay to solve their unsolvable problems. And it's very clear cut. And I've heard, I've gotten this question in so many interviews, like, what is consulting? Why do you want to do consulting? And I'm always like, well, I like to solve problems. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a tough question to to answer. Well, well the, the next step is, is, is not only solve problems, but to get the client to accept the recommendations. Another definition of a consultant is a change agent. If you begin the assignment and then the client uh, does nothing after you've done, you, you've not changed anything. You've not gotten them closer to, 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 to resolution. So the actual two parts, one is you've got to be able to solve problems or like solving problems, but the next part is to be, be persuasive in order to be a change agent. So what are three skills that are most important for consultants? And you kind of touched on them a little bit, but how would you define those skills? Sure. So as we're talking about these definitions, one skill is persuasiveness. Uh, being able to convey ideas. That's why written and oral communications are so important for consultants to have. Not only to be able to diagnose and articulate what their problem is, but again, to persuade the client that here's what, here are my recommendations, here's why you need to change. The second thing, and this goes back to our prior conversation about the value of business school, is that you must be versatile. You may have majored in a financial supply chain or something else, but 
as a consultant, you can't rely on that one discipline. You've got to have a broad view. And if you think about it, for, for any of your listeners who've been in case competitions, uh, particularly Johnson & Johnson, you, you can't just be a, a finance gronk or a supply chain wizard. You really got to see big picture about the problem in its entirety. So, so that's important. The third thing that's important, so the, the first uh, being a, a skilled communicator. The second is being versatile in skills. Uh, the third is to have, I won't say determination, but um, it's long hours, it's hard work. Uh, and you've got to really be invested in what you're doing because if you're looking for the kind of job we can just show up and then go home at five o'clock, uh, this isn't it. It's, it's a very intense experience. So that determination and that intensity, the I guess the X factor, is really what distinguishes probably the more successful consultants versus those who are less successful. So persuasiveness and communication, you know, versatility. And it seems like the last part was you know, determination and, and grit and having the ability to persevere, work, work long hours. And you have to have like a degree of passion for what you're doing. Too. Exactly. So what would you tell a student or anybody who wants to go into consulting and maybe needs some help developing these skills and just in general, breaking into the industry? Well, your, your first experience out of college doesn't necessarily have to be in consulting. Uh, it can be in something else. But I would say that while you're there is to really learn your industry very, very well. Uh, whether it's uh, light manufacturing or whether it's transportation or whether it's uh, uh, utilities, that is going to provide value for you for you if you wish to change to consulting. Because once you can demonstrate that you have this uh, knowledge, they can put you in a situation with a client where you can have an intelligent conversation about the industry. Of course, the client who's paying big bucks for people like you, they want to have this feeling that you're competent. And if you can speak with competency about your industry, uh, that that goes a long way. So, so that was the long answer. The, the short answer to your question is, uh, for your job after graduation from undergraduate, regardless, uh, learn the industry well, and if it's possible, uh, to be have have versatile skills to do that. Uh, I think that goes a long way. So something that we talked about before was with regard to business school is that you know there's a decreasing trend in in-person MBAs there's the increasing trend in online MBAs and there's an increasing trend in these kind of specific one-year field like degrees professional degrees and something that I've been thinking about is the future of education as it relates to COVID and moving online. And if we're seeing a trend in 
an increase in online MBAs, could you see an increase in online undergraduate programs as well? That That's highly likely. And I think next year, uh, next academic year, 2021, will, will be a turning point in education to see how, how that turns out. Some educators are concerned that students will just go to, let's say, community college and not transfer over uh, because the cost is, is, is less. All schools, whether it's Rutgers or Princeton or Monmouth or, or Montclair or any of the other colleges in New Jersey or across the nation are going to have to really study hard about what this next year brings. Are graduating seniors going to not show up next year if it's online and come a year later for for the the physical experience? Uh, will people stay longer in um, community college? Will people just seek to go right into the job force, into the workforce without a college degree and uh, manage it that way? So we don't have the answer we don't have the answer in spring and summer of 2020. It won't be until spring or summer of 2021 that we'll have a better idea of which way this wind will blow. So this past semester has kind of been like a, I like to call it like a, it was basically like an AB test for online learning in college and I've definitely learned a lot as a student in how learning could look like online in the future. And I'm sure that you as professors also learned a lot from teaching online. And what I want to ask you is what have, just based on conversation you've had and your connection with Rutgers, have professors, administrators, et cetera, kind of learned from this past semester? of being online and being forced to iterate your lesson plans and change the way that you're teaching? Student engagement has been and always be the most important factor, whether it's live face-to-face, whether it's live over the computer, or whether it's asynchronous, where this professor records the lecture and the student looks at it later. So at, at the risk of sound, sounding boastful, the reason why I run one of these best professor awards is because I have student engagement as paramount as part of the teaching process. By student engagement, I mean uh, asking questions uh, relating to students' uh, experiences, uh, knowing their background, knowing what the likes and dislikes are. Uh, to have a one-way conversation for three, for, for three hours doesn't make any sense. But just as when you pick what retail store you want to go to, you're trying to find a good experience and get the value out of the store when you walk out of the store. The same is with the classroom. You're going to show up to the classroom as a student if you feel that you're going to get the value that you plan for and that you actually leave with. So that's why it's really, really important uh, 
for to have student engagement both live and in person. So uh, it means asking interactive questions. It means breaking students into groups. It's to encouraging debate. That's what makes it successful. So it's funny because I was thinking back to intro to management. And if anybody, any of the listeners didn't know, I'm a teaching assistant for introduction to management. And one of the most difficult concepts to teach is employee engagement. I don't know what it is, but for the past three semesters, like students don't understand it. It's difficult to teach. I've talked with my professor about like several times he's asked all the entire TA team, how can we better teach employee engagement? It's so difficult to teach. And you're saying, you know, student engagement is the number one priority in the classroom. And from a student's perspective, that's 100% true. If the prof- my professor is giving me a voice, he's keeping me and my peers engaged, he's introducing us to new topics and encouraging us to share our ideas and work as a team, I'm much more engaged and I'm also getting a much better learning experience. So the question I want to ask you is, what would you do to teach professors how to engage their students? Well, we, we talked in your in your prior question about uh, online versus uh, live. And <clears throat> for Rutgers professors, they had to convert from live to online almost overnight, like literally within 10 days time. We really didn't have the time to talk about best practices and to enforce best practices. Uh, Over the course of the summer, there will be a review of the technology and about the practices to encourage engagement. So um, the, 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 the short answer to your question is that what will change will be a more rigorous conversation about what best practices are and for uh, the leaders of the school to ensure that those best practices are actually not only conveyed, but, but demonstrated. So the transition from teaching in person to teaching online has definitely been a tough one, but what is has been the biggest struggle for you and other professors in making that transition? Well, one was learning the technology. We had different choices. We could use Blackboard. We could use Zoom. We could use WebEx. Uh, how, how do you know which one is best for you based on what you want to teach? Uh, which which uh, technology had the biggest capacity? Uh, which technology allowed you to write on the board? Which technology allowed you to have guest speakers come in without any problem? So that issue is kind of overlooked. I think that next year, Rutgers Business School is transitioning to Canvas, which has been optional with other Rutgers University schools. So I think there'll be more uh, uniformity, at least in the technology. And if there's uniformity in the technology, it's easier to convey what the best practices are with that particular technology. I hope you found value in this episode. I definitely did. Getting an MBA has always been something on my radar 
and it was great speaking with Professor Fraser about this topic because he has a lot of knowledge about education and business and offers a very unique perspective on that big question, you know, should I get my MBA? If you have any additional questions, you can find Professor Fraser on LinkedIn. He is an awesome guy. Also, shout out to Prerak Patel from episode nine for connecting us. Without you, this conversation wouldn't have happened. If you haven't checked out episode number nine yet, definitely go back and check it out. If you found this episode interesting, you'll definitely be interested in what Prerak and I talk about in that episode. It's about the consulting industry. We talk a little bit about how to get an internship, how to get a job. I think you'll really like it if you liked what we discussed in this episode. But anyways, this has been the Gritty and Curious Podcast, a podcast that gives you the inspiration, knowledge, and tools to start your next venture. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.